ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's podcast is the first time I've held a discussion with two guests. Back in October, the University of Pittsburgh hosted the Central Eurasian Studies Society Conference, and among those in attendance were Peter Leonard and Josh Kuchera from Eurasianet. I followed Peter and Josh's work for a while now, and I thought having them in town was a perfect opportunity to sit down and discuss their particular ballywicks, Central Asia and the South Caucasus. I found this discussion incredibly informative, and I hope you do too. Peter Leonard has served as Eurasianet's Central Asia editor since 2015. Prior to that, he worked as Ukraine bureau chief for the Associated Press. And between 2009 and 2013, he served as Central Asia correspondent for the AP. Josh Kuchera is Eurasianet's Turkey and Caucasus editor. He has also written about the Caucasus in Central Asia for Slate, the New York Times, Al Jazeera America, The Atlantic, and other publications. He's a former staff reporter for Jane's Defense Weekly and the Associated Press. Here's Peter Leonard and Josh Kuchera. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for uh, joining me for this conversation. I'm glad to have you in town. Um, and I thought we'd start off by just having you talk a bit about your background and how you got involved in covering Eurasia or the Caucasus in terms of you, Josh. So let's start with you, Peter. How did you get into all of this? Yeah, so um, my name's uh, Peter Leonard. I'm the uh, Central Asia editor for Eurasianet. Um, if the question is how I got into covering Central Asia, it's uh, kind of a, a longish story, but I'm a Russianist by uh, background. So uh, I did my studies in uh, London to begin with, um, and then eventually moved to Russia and got into journalism over there. And uh, I guess um, Central Asia was a sort of uh, a logical extension in a way for someone who's exploring the periphery of uh, Russia. I think I wanted to explore something uh, that was familiar and yet a little bit different. Um, so by very, so a variety of vicissitudes kind of ended up in uh, Central Asia uh, working for the Associated Press in 2009. And I was in Central Asia for about five years doing that job. Uh, left and then uh, went to uh, Ukraine also for the AP, covered the beginning of the war over there and was there for about a year. Um, and so, uh, and then after some time decided uh, the call of Central Asia was too strong and uh, so I ended up uh, returning uh, with this job, uh, which I started in 2015. And how about you, Josh? Uh, yeah, I think anybody involved in this part of the world, there's a lot of vicissitudes uh, involved. And I also 
uh, it was kind of a, a roundabout route. I, you know, in college I was a math major, and I did a, a semester abroad, a math uh, program in Budapest, um, and I, I fell in love with Eastern Europe then, um, and eventually got out of math. Um, but uh, then I, I went to teach English in Bulgaria after right after college at a high school in Bulgaria, and. Uh, um, once I started as a journalist, I, I moved to Belgrade, uh, lived there for three years as a freelancer, and um, September 11th happened while I was there. People kind of got out of interest in, in Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Right. People, it's kind of back now, uh, but at the time, nobody cared about the Balkans anymore. Um, and so I, I eventually moved to Washington, and I got a job um, at Jane's Defense Weekly, and um, this is, you know, in the early days of the war on terror, and um, there was there were there was kind of intriguing new um, U.S. programs uh, in the region. There was the Georgia Train and Equip. There was the um, the the U.S. air bases in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, and this uh, Caspian Guard, where the U.S. trained um, Azerbaijani and Kazakhstan naval special forces, and so I was covering those things, and it all seemed very exotic, and I didn't know anything about these places, and. Um, so I, I quit that job after a couple of years, and I started freelancing. Um, and I, as a freelancer, I cast a pretty wide net. But one of the th- people I pitched was Eurasianet to kind of be their Washington correspondent. Uh, and they, they bit. And so I, I spent several years in Washington freelancing, uh, continuing to freelance for, for Eurasianet. Um, and then over the years, um, traveled to the region more and more, I, which I'd never been to before I, I started uh, this gig. Um, but uh, then started going more and more and started focusing more and more exclusively on Caucasus and Central Asia. Uh, and then I, I started this job uh, as the Turkey Caucasus editor uh, about two years ago. So, so so you didn't start out like as a Russian trained going to college for Russian. No, you just kind no, of fell into it because yeah. of the math trip. Yeah, that, yeah. That's interesting. You got the bug essentially. and Exactly. You know, this was 1993 that I did that semester in, in – uh, uh, Budapest, and it was a very kind of exciting time uh, in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Um, and I, I not only traveled, you know, Budapest was one thing, but I also traveled to Romania and uh, Bulgaria and Serbia and Croatia and places that were a little bit, um, it was kind of uh, a little more exotic, I would yeah. say. Yeah. No, Peter, but you started out studying Russia. That's right. So, uh, um, you know, I, 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 it's probably quite a, a cliched story uh, reading, uh, you know, you, you, you discover the classics in your teens. Right. I don't know if that's that much of a cliche, actually. I might be slightly overstating it. But, um, um, yeah, so I, I, Central Asia really only appeared on my radar, actually, when I uh, read this uh book, which is a kind of a uh, travel classic called Eastern Approaches mm. by uh, a British diplomat called Fitzroy MacLean, and he was uh, uh, actually uh, one of the few people able to follow the show trials in the mm. 19, in, uh, 1930s. Um, and at a certain point in his uh, stay in the Soviet Union, he goes off to uh, Central Asia, was one of the very few people able to explore it at the time, and uh, and it's such a sort of an evocative, kind of very romantic uh, yeah. telling of this region and and uh, and I, I think I was the first time it sort of really 
properly registered with me as a place beyond uh, beyond you know the names of one kind of is vaguely aware of you know Samarkand and Bukhara. Uh, so you know my first exploration of the region was very touristic, very kind of uh, uh, sort of green tourist. Uh, but uh, though something about it just kind of kept on uh, dragging me back, and so yeah, it just uh, the 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 interest grew from there, and, and uh, yeah, and I kind of contrived a way of uh, making a living out. Yeah, is, that's always nice. the best way. It is, yeah. it is. It's mm-hmm. just because it's interesting is both of you approach, you know, the, the standard story is, you know, like my story, for example, is you study Russia and you stay in Russia and the rest of it is kind of a periphery. But both of you are looking at the region from the periphery, you know, you know, you, Josh, from the Caucasus and you, Peter, from Central Asia. So what is, what is it... Uh, what is attractive about looking at these peripheral regions rather than, say, the core of Eurasia, which is, say, the Russian Federation? I think the people who cover the uh, periphery, although I might use a different word, sure. um, uh, <laughs> certainly resent the Muscovite kind right, of... Right, the uh, Russocentrism. Uh, exactly, <laughs> very much so, very much so. I mean, not just Russocentrism, but Moscow-centrism. Yes. I mean, I, of course, this is a problem for Russia coverage uh, in any case that, that it's so Moscow-centric. Um, so, though, speaking personally, um, I think as a sort of um, journalist, there is something quite um, uh, fulfilling about covering a story which you sort of own completely uh, for yourself. Um, often you own it completely because nobody else really wants it. I mean, that's <laughs> the sort of downside of that, that exclusivity arrangement. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a kind of a purely... Um, sort of a selfish take on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have to say, though, you know, uh, of late, since I've been able to cover Central Asia with a bit more, with a considerable more depth working for Eurasia now, which is obviously quite a specialist publication, um, I've realized that even as a Central Asia correspondent back in my AP days, that I still, notwithstanding the fact that I lived in the region, uh, sort of wore very much kind of, if not Moscow-centric eyes, even even worse, you know, quite sort of uh, Western-centric kind of. I had a very Western-centric perspective to the extent that... uh, if, for example, we would report about, let's say, Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan was, until a few years ago, the site of a U.S. Uh, airbase, you would always have to sort of insert that into the story in order to make it uh, relevant uh, for the readers. And uh, and what I'm really enjoying about the job now is that actually I've, I've sort of, you know, learned to kind of form a self-discipline to, to uh, move away a little bit from those kind of uh, boilerplate lines that you know, we assume makes the story more relevant for right. Western readers and have, you know, tried to be uh, as uh, local and the perspective as is possible. Uh, of course, it helps that all of our colleagues are from the region as well, and that's mm-hmm. a very important kind of aspect of what we do. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, I mean, uh, this is a very long-winded kind of way of answering your question, but uh, certainly... Um, I would say, speaking for myself, it is an important part of the agenda to kind of relocate the perspective. Um, And I think that's very much kind of part of our core agenda. No, I I think I agree with everything Peter said. And I think that, you know, although this region is a periphery of Russia, it's also many other things. Um, And I think, 
you know, like Peter, I like, you know, being one of the very few people covering the region. And, uh, you know, I think, on, you know, once you get into it, it's no less interesting than Russia. It's no less deep or complicated or whatever. But there's a lot of people chasing the same stories right. uh, in Russia. And here, uh, the field is much more wide open. And, uh, and it feels like you're doing something more um, useful, too, frankly, than being the hundredth reporter in Moscow, you're one of the the very few people covering this, you know, still interesting and and important region. Right. But it, but it's such a you know for both of you know the caucuses. I mean, one of, one of the things it's famous for is it's it's diversity in terms of ethnicity, in terms of languages, in terms of the geography of it, uh, the the religious aspects. But you know, Central Asia too is incredibly complex region. I mean, Central Asia is a much larger region to deal with. Um, so how do you, you know, because it's such a complex place, both of these geographical regions, how do, how do you address that complexity, I think would be my first question. Like, how, because if you're sensitive, as you said, Peter, to the, to the local, so how do you address that in, in a place like, you know, Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan, which is just diverse ethnic, by ethnicity? And then same for the Caucasus. This is again where our reliance on uh, local colleagues becomes so indispensable. I think that um, the again, I mean, to sort of reprise the point from earlier, I think when one comes with the Moscow-centric or, uh, I mean, we can talk about this a little bit later, I mean, when you come with the whole package of sort of set narratives about great game and, and all that kind of stuff, I mean, those things are, are, are terribly useful for a journalist in a hurry because, uh, because they sort of, uh, you know, they, they dispense with the complexity that you're asking about. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the way that we um, address the complexity is, you know, every single day that we work and every single story that we write is uh, is a, a new education, and uh, and it's it's hard. I mean, it's 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 hard for me. I'm not a, a scholar of the region. I mean, I, I I'm an amateur scholar of the sure. region, but I, I, I uh, you know I. I you know, in, invariably, inevitably, inescapably, have to take a kind of quite a often superficial journalistic approach to it. Um, and yet, you know, I think you just have to kind of approach uh, the whole uh, story with humility, always yeah. kind of rely on the expertise of uh, of others, and and acknowledge the complexity that you're uh, alluding to, and and, uh, and and try in every way that you can to kind of tease it out of the stories. Right. How about for the Caucasus? Yeah, I, I would agree again with uh, with what Peter said. I think in the Caucasus, there's, um, you know, given that there there are significant conflicts there, um, there's um, there's an additional level of complexity because if you're relying on the kind of local, pers- you know, Armenia has one perspective, Azerbaijan has one perspective, right. and you know, there's really not that many people who are attempting to find. You know, I don't want to use the truth or, you know, the objective reality, but something, you know, <laughs> um, that an outsider can can relate to. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's again, uh, you know, you just have to kind of put one foot in front of the other and like try to figure this stuff out. And, and in a case, every case, um, you know, look at all the available evidence and try to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. I'd say in this respect, I'm immensely fortunate compared to Josh in that uh, although the governments in Central Asia, the the different countries in Central Asia have 
at various times in history has had some uh, disagreements, sometimes r- reasonably serious ones, you don't uh, really have this reflected in right. the in this kind of um, very uh, disagreeable kind of exchange of opinions that one confronts constantly between Azerbaijan and Armenia, let's say. Um, in fact, uh, you know, yes, diversity and complexity. Although, you know, it, what is interesting is that the 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 national the, the sort of official rhetoric often in uh, in countries let's say like Kazakhstan is that yes we are very diverse but we are very sort of united and, and they kind of the, the, the diversity does not imply kind of uh, kind of a destructive right. uh, sort of um, uh, dynamic so um, and, and you know I, I think that the government's um, and I'm thinking of Kazakhstan in particular, tend to overstate this. I think they they um, they like to kind of com- portray this, com- convey the sort of image of, of kind of harmonious uh, togetherness. I think they overstate it, but it's but it, right. there's a great deal of uh, truth to it at the same time. Um, and so, you know, I I don't feel uh, that the, the the complexity is sort of necessarily for us in Central Asia who cover it uh, uh, pitfall. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe for Josh, it, it does present problems sometimes. Uh, so that's kind of one distinction I would draw. Yeah, and I'd also say, you know, like like uh, Kazakhstan, the countries in the Caucasus. I mean, they're they you know each of those three countries has a very you know uh, different opinion than the other. But within the countries, the the diversity is kind of being squeezed out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a result of the wars in Armenia and Azerbaijan, right. all the you know the there was ethnically cleansed on both sides and. You know, Baku used to be this incredibly cosmopolitan place in the Soviet times and all the, not all the Russians, but, you know, the large majority of the Russians, Jews, uh, and of course, Armenians have left, you know, Georgia, um, lost, you know, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Um, so there's there's a, a kind of mono uh, yeah. culture emerging in all three uh, countries. Mm. It's a very similar trend in Central Asia to a lesser extent and for different reasons, but um, and to varying degrees within the five countries that I cover. But uh, let's say a country like Tajikistan, for example, I mean, this is almost entirely, uh, you know, mono, mono, uh, well, monocultural, monoethnic. I mean, that's not accounting for the uh, Pamiris in the east of the country who consider themselves kind of a distinct kind of uh, subgroup in the country. But in any case, um, the trend has been over the 25 plus years of independence uh, towards this sort of uh, uh, sort of increasing kind of marginalization um, of of minorities of a large which portion of which was back in the day of course uh, you know the Slavic population much of which kind of packed their bags and left pretty early on after independence so you know it is while you're right that uh, of course there is complexity there um, or diversity, um, the, the demographic change has been quite notable. Yeah. It's becoming less diverse and less complex, I yeah. think, in that fashion. Yeah. That, that's actually really interesting because I was commenting on this to my students just a few days ago about because I was talking about Soviet nationality policy, and I told them one of the ironies is that, say, Russia today is more Russian than it's ever been in terms of when it's had empires. And it's interesting to hear of a similar you know, homogenization process in terms of ethnicity in, in Central Asia and the Caucasus. I wasn't, I mean, I've heard, 
you know, about like Baku and, and the, uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia in the sense of you get a, a really strong kind of, you know, those diasporas are going back to their nation states. Um, but uh, I never really thought it through in terms of the entire region. So since you, you both cover these areas that have, you know, lots of diversity and complexity, what are some of the main issues that um, you think are important that you pay attention to? Let's start with you, Josh. Uh, you mean in sort of region-wide yeah, issues? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like you said, it's very complex and a lot of different things going on. So, I, you know, to come up with a sort of overarching narrative, I mean, I do think that, you know, while a lot of the people in these countries will resist this, there is a still, I, I think the big narrative is a kind of breaking away from the Soviet past. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a process that's still ongoing. Um, and I think almost everything in the region is, it kind of goes back to that, um, you know, and I, a transition, not in a transition to um, this, you know, end state of democracy and whatever, but whatever it's going to be, um, I do think that there's still um, this kind of reckoning with the Soviet past is is really ubiquitous, mm-hmm. um, both in the domestic sense and in terms of like identity, who we are. Uh, and the politics, what kind of politics are we going to have? What is our, what's relevant about our history to, to, um, to today? Um, and then, you know, that's also true in this kind of geopolitical sphere, like Russia's influence in the region, I think, is inexorably declining. Um, what's going to happen with that? You know, in Central Asia, China is, I think, inexorably rising. Right. Um, the West, the U.S., who knows? Um, but, you know, and in the caucus, it's, it's a little less clear, I think, who might, um, you know, fill that vacuum if you want to say there's a vacuum uh, with Russia leaving. Uh, but anyway, all this, I think that to me is the, the big, if there's one big overarching um, story, that's, that's what it is. And how, and how about for Central Asia? What is uh, one of the big issues? You know, um, if you'd asked me uh, even three or four years ago if there was uh, some kind of uh, you know, one kind of uh, coverall issue which you would sort of describe as a dynamic in all of Central Asia, I would have really struggled to answer because you know what you have with this region essentially is uh you know independence kind of foisted on them on these five nations because it was a, an independence that nobody expected to receive and and so uh the immediate post independence period was i think experienced very much as initially as trauma and then the the recovery uh phase after that was in cultural terms very much uh directed towards asserting some form of uh, you know, national identity um and and wittingly or unwittingly that sort of led to a kind of a atomization of the region and and sort of the 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 fact of these five nations sort of embarking on their five different paths and and in a way that I have always felt is very unnecessarily destructive in that, you know, they're countries which have so much in common and yet often uh, really struggle, fail to dialogue with one another. And this has changed uh, quite dramatically, I would say, in the last uh, couple of years since the death of uh, the uh, uh, Uzbek president, Islam Karimov, in uh, September 2016. 
I mean, he was sort of the isolationist uh, par excellence. I mean, he didn't want to have anything to do with anybody, um, you know, that he felt would uh, in any way sort of uh, undermine, you know, Uzbekistan's sort of autarkic kind of vision right. of itself. Um, so the new president, Shafkat Mirziyoyev, on the other hand, is you know, taken a 180 degree turn away from that policy and has uh, really done everything uh, possible to kind of promote the agenda of integration in the region. And this has meant in practical terms, uh, uh, sort of uh, re re reappraising ties with uh, Tajikistan, let's say, next door, uh, with which Uzbekistan's never enjoyed particularly good relations, uh, and also with Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan. So from being the sort of the, uh, the the troublemaker of the region and the kind of the enemy of integration in the region, Uzbekistan suddenly become this sort of uh, uh, locomotive of integration in the region. I mean, it's very early days yet. Uh, right. You know, for someone who's very um, fond of this region, I, I feel uh, optimistic and enthusiastic Enthusiastic about this, I, I hope that isn't it isn't too late. But this uh, sort of integration uh, dynamic is, I think, very much the sort of flavor of the day, and and uh, and uh, you know, and and that will in its in turn have implications uh, for how the region uh, interacts with you know the great powers, be it China and Russia and right. and the West. I, I was surprised that, that, Josh, you said that the Soviet um, legacy continues to kind of haunt as a question for the caucuses. So how do people, and, and this is a question for both of you, how do people regard the Soviet past in the caucuses and in Central Asia? Um, I, I, I don't know that I want to say that it haunts people still. Um, yeah. It's just something that you know, that was the, the, where they all were um, in 1991. And every, all these changes, I think, are coming still from that. I mean, I think, I think it's quite different in, in the Caucasus in Central Asia, especially with uh, Georgia and Armenia. I mean, I think they had much uh, stronger national identities um, before the Soviet Union uh, existed. And so the, 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 um, the enthusiasm for independence was much greater um, in those countries, and I would say they are um, the least um, maybe vexed by the Soviet past. Um, you know, Azerbaijan is a really interesting case, and I think it has probably a lot to do with um, with Central Asia, and that it's wrestling much more with these. Um, you know, we just had a story uh, on Eurasian Net about Russian language education, um, and there's you know there's a still kind of informal class system. Uh, something like 10% of students in, in um, Azerbaijan still go to Russian language schools, um, and they are sort of the elite. Um, and so parents, even who are, you know, speak Azerbaijani at home, they'll try to get their kids into Russian language schools. Um, and there's a, But there's a, a constant ongoing debate about, you know, why do we still have these r Russian language schools? Um, you know, similarly, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a struggle in Azerbaijan, sort of and an interesting struggle from my perspective about, you know, identity, who we are. Are we Turks, yeah. um, Azerbaijani Turks? Are we Azerbaijanis? Is that something really separate? Um, and so there's these kind of really active and, and very unresolved um, questions uh, that have been, um, that have kind of emerged uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union. And what about the Soviet legacies in, in Central Asia? 
As far as people's attitudes toward the uh, Soviet era, I, I think like in many other parts of the Soviet Union, you can sort of draw this kind of uh, line by age, right? So, you know, anyone over a certain age will sort of go kind of misty-eyed and, and have these kind of... Uh, but, you know, th that... I think is is uh, purely sort of uh, personal sort of psychological kind of hang up right. that people have of course you know they have fond memories of their youth um and that I would say um is one thing but then um you know the relationship to Moscow to Russia is uh I think informed by a, a whole sort of different set of uh, uh sort of uh, assumptions um and again, it varies very differently among all the different countries. So, and so if we take a country like Tajikistan, the poorest country uh, in the region, uh, which is extremely reliant on Russian remittances, right. I wouldn't say, I mean, having just come from uh, living there for several months, that anybody you know has any sort of deep love for Russia. Uh, but of course, they understand perfectly well uh, the role that that country plays in their lives right. um, and the importance that it has for their country. And of course, you know, there's an abiding respect. Uh, but, you know, n I wouldn't say the level of affection is probably neutral uh, at best. Um, but then you sort of shift one country up, you go to Kyrgyzstan, and there, on the other hand, also a very heavily remittance-dependent country. And yet the attitude, not to the Soviet Union, but to Russia, I think is is remarkably strong, is remarkably positive. Um, for different reasons. I, I think that, for instance, Kyrgyzstan is uh, much, much more strongly under the sway of the of the kind of the, the Russia, Russian state uh, media machine. So it, it's, it's very uh, common in Kyrgyzstan, for instance, to have the kind of conversations that I recall having in eastern Ukraine, you know, uh, um, you know, who are you? Why are you here? You know, you Westerners, you always uh, come and make trouble. Uh, that's something you won't see that much in Uzbekistan. I mean, I think that, uh, of course, people know that they were part to the Soviet Union, and of course you you feel it physically around you. Yeah. But I, I'd say the, the 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 legacy is, of course, in the economy is very strong, and and in the way that the state is run, and of course those things are are, are still very present. But I'd say at a, at a kind of a at a popular level, I personally feel it quite uh, weakly. Mm. Um, and yet, even there, you know, I remember. Um, uh, inadvertently getting into a very uh, vicious argument with this uh, uh, owner of this uh, bed and breakfast I stayed and he was uh, watching uh, one of these kind of Russian political talk shows and he kind of turned around and uh, I think the talk show was about the Skripal poisoning and he kind of said oh, what do you think uh, and I, I hazarded a very neutral opinion and it ended up into a blazing row and, but what was interesting I mean, he was you know pure Uzbek but he ended up by the end of this conversation kind of referring to you know why, why do you hate us so much uh, and I thought that was uh, a very kind of telling thing uh -huh. yeah <laughs> that's interesting in this slippage back to <laughs> so um, you know it, from hearing you guys talk about your interest in the region and the way you approach it I mean you're you're both come across very sensitive to your position as you know coming into the region as an outsider but also to how you see it and I mean Peter you you mentioned some of the coming in with a kind of western lizard brain and having to kind of dial that down so as as two people who are sensitive to all these things and are, are reporting on this region that to most Westerners, let alone Americans, it's kind of a totally alien place. What are some of the um, the stereotypes that you find 
uh, in the reporting about uh, the regions that you cover? And, and how, what do you do to, to avoid them or try to undermine them? Um, I think one, you know, common stereotype is that there is this um, natural, and you see this all over the Soviet space, uh, post-Soviet space, that there's this kind of natural development that all these countries should be going on. This is a kind of end of history, which I know is everyone's favorite punching bag now, but it, it still really does infuse um, a lot of the, the media coverage of, uh, of the post-Soviet world that, you know, you have these countries that were it not for Russia, they would be, you know, prosperous, democratic, et cetera, um, and that Russia is just spoiling everything. Um, and, you know, again, uh, I think that that's an oversimplification. You know, I, I think it's more useful to look at it in terms of, you know, this is, this is a battle for ideas. Um, and this is the same thing that's going on really all over the world now, including in the United States. Um, and I think that's a more productive way to, to, to see this kind of, um, because there are these, there is um, a certain, you know, I don't know, what to, I don't want to call it backsliding because that kind of uh, <laughs> uh, uh, suggests this teleological uh, movement. Um, but there is a rejection, I would say, uh, growing in the region of um, kind of liberal values. Mm. Um, you see LGBT issues kind of used as a wedge um, right. thing quite often. And to be fair, Russia does at times instrumentalize those things. Um, but I don't think that, that it's necessarily a, you know, these countries would be extremely, you know, right thinking and right. and progressive were it not for Russia's malign influence. Um, so it's just, I think it's just in terms of that story, which is a huge story, I think, and it's just a story that we, I, I try to take, you know, very seriously in the Caucasus because I think it's a very big uh, thing. Just try to look at it not in this um, kind of uh, Russia versus the West thing, yeah. but in a more global context. Um, I would say that's that's to me the the biggest um, kind of stereotype that I don't like yeah. about the region. And I think Josh has kind of spoken for both of us. I think yeah. this describes uh, 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 sort of exactly the situation in Central Asia. I mean, I, I, I would reprise what I alluded to earlier, but I will kind of speak from sort of out of both sides of my mouth a little bit in that uh, the, the the famous kind of narrative of uh, Central Asia is this kind of great game, this kind of division of Central Asia being this uh, uh, you know, object of uh, uh, sort of um, interest of uh, the great powers. And I, I although... You know, obviously that narrative doesn't sit very well with me because it, it always kind of writes, uh, you know, the agency uh, of kind of these countries out of the out of the picture. I don't. I don't tend to fall back on it myself, but I don't. Uh, I'm not as kind of allergic to it as uh, many people are, simply because, in a way. Uh, if you're the object of a stereotype, that kind of means you've sort of joined joined the big boys club, you know. And I I, I don't I don't I don't think stereotypes are 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 great, but the fact you have a stereotype kind of means that you've sort of you've you've made you've joined the 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 the, the Premier League sort of thing. So uh, uh, in a way, uh, stereotypes can be useful if only as you kind of uh, stated in the question, you, you sort of set out to to you know to disprove them right. or to to you know 
fine-tune them in a way. Uh, so uh, although classically we tend to think of the, the sort of the struggle, strategic struggle of uh, Central Asia as being between the West and Russia, of course we're seeing a new kind of emerging dynamic where China is kind of taking much more of a, a stronger role. Uh, but you know, but what I kind of tend to uh, think about that is uh, is 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 viewing that you know less in terms of this sort of zero sum game right. uh, sort of dynamic and, and it's kind of it's 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 a, there's a useful corrective that we can offer for saying that you know okay well yes and no mm-hmm. right and this is why. But nevertheless, you know, both regions are. Uh, smaller states around larger states. I mean, we've spoken about Russia, China, but there's also Iran, Turkey, um, uh, India, perhaps to some extent. Um, How does putting, say, the Russian and China aside, because there's the big ones, what about the other other states like Iran and Turkey and maybe some South, maybe India plays a role, you can correct me if I'm wrong, and their influence and relationship with, with the, your respective regions? You know, it, it's interesting that, that both, you know, in the Caucasus, uh, Turkey and, and, and Iran are the two regional um, powers that would have some influence, but they, it's, it's remarkably small. I mean, mm-hmm. Turkey, Turkey has quite close relations with Azerbaijan, obviously, um, and there's a number of um, energy projects, uh, Western-backed energy projects that, that link um, Azerbaijan through Georgia to Turkey. Um, and so there's a certain amount of economic um, linkage, and you'll see Turkey, and this is, I think, true in the, in the Central Asia as well, there's lots of construction. The airports are built by Turkey, the shopping malls, um, and so on. So there's a lot of economic involvement um, from Turkey, but not as much political um, involvement, even in, in Azerbaijan, um, I think, as as maybe everyone expected in the 90s when right. Turkey had a very active foreign policy in the whole region. Um, and Iran is, is, you know, it borders Azerbaijan and, and Armenia, um, and it's, you know, a fairly large economy and, and would seem to be a place where there was um, a kind of a big... Uh, influence, uh, there, there's really not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Azer- I think for for different reasons in each country. I mean, Azerbaijan is a, a special case in that it has something like 25% of the population of Iran is ethnic Azerbaijani, um, and so you know, Tehran is extremely worried about Azerbaijan as a sort of potential, you know, pole of attraction for them. Um, and likewise, uh, Azerbaijan is extremely worried about. Um, uh, Iranian meddling uh, in Azerbaijan. So there's a huge amount of mistrust uh, in those countries. Um, you know, Iran and, and Armenia have relatively um, good relations kind of necessitated by the fact that for Armenia, its borders with Turkey and Azerbaijan are closed. And so there's a lot of economic ties, but it's still, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it, the, the numbers are still really quite small in terms of trade between Armenia and Iran. Um, I think part of this is actually due to U.S. sanctions um, and U.S. Uh, pressuring all these countries. And they, they kind of um, are, are a little more sympathetic to these countries' uh, needs to, to get along with Iran. But, um, but I think that there's still um, – they're a little bit uh, wary to do that to, um, because of the U.S. sanctions and, and consequences that might have. And what about for Central, Central Asia? 
I mean, I suppose this is uh, where the issue of Soviet uh, legacy still is relevant in a way, because uh, indeed in Central Asia, uh, as uh, Josh alluded to, the presence of Turkish, let's say, and, and uh, Indian investors is uh, relatively small. I mean, so, you know, it, it, it tends to be that each country has their kind of area of specialization, you know, so the Turks kind of have the the retail right. kind of sector and do a lot of trade and, and, uh, and construction. Uh, India has, I would say, a reasonably small footprint, um, which indeed, just looking at a map, you can Kind of, it is very counterintuitive, but it's almost as though sort of there's this kind of path dependency, which has been established by the Soviet kind of uh, uh, story. Um, you know, Ch China, of course, uh, is making inroads, but in in very literal terms, they're building roads, yeah, right? Yes. So, I mean, and, and that's kind of not not uh, uh, not for nothing. You know, the, 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 this is how you kind of uh, you, you sort of sink your kind of talents into the countries. You actually have mm -hmm. to build infrastructure. And there's no good infrastructure really linking Central Asia to to uh, South Asia, which is incidentally um, where when we look at uh, the role that uh, the West has to play, the United States in particular, the agenda that they've kind of very much been uh, pushing for many years now is to sort of break Central Asia away. Well, Let's say uh, generously that they're not necessarily trying to break it away from Russia, although that is in fact what they're trying to do, uh, and, and to kind of try and kind of plug it into the South Asian yeah. economy. And so they're doing this, for instance, by promoting uh, big infrastructure projects like one to connect the electricity grid of Central Asia to Pakistan and eventually India, for instance. So the, the, the big kind of... Uh, sort of epoch-making project uh, projects uh, are in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan to build these kind of mega uh, hydroelectric dams with a view to selling electricity to Afghanistan and Pakistan. So the vision there... I suppose in, in the kind of the the, the 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 geopolitical thinkers in the West kind of pouring over their maps is of a is of a future greater Central Asia where it's it's no longer a kind of a Russian sort of satellite but uh, uh, this sort of uh, 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 this region plugged into the economies of, of South Asia, but. As it is at the moment, uh, you know, progress is slow, and uh, uh, as I say, you know, um, South Asia plays a, a surprisingly small role. I mean, considering even that, uh, uh, you know, Pakistan is almost literally a stone's throw from, say, uh, Tajikistan, right. uh, and yet, um, you know, the, the relationship uh, in economic terms is pretty paltry. If I could jump yeah, in, sure. you know, I, I, not to step on Peter's toes yeah. on Central Asia, but, I, you know, I, I have been to Almaty and Bishkek a couple of times in the last couple of years. And what really struck me, and I used to, to, to be there more, is, is this uh, the Korean stuff that you mm. see. And this is like a soft power thing. Mm. Um, but the, the number of like K-pop cafes and like Korean street food huh. uh, stalls and, you know, the fashion magazines are from Korea. And, you know, it, it really struck me how, how much, how quickly that's grown, that kind of, uh, cultural influence from from South Korea. 
Central Asia has its kind of quote-unquote indigenous Korean population. Right, right, who, from, uh, the, from the ethnic uh, cleansing. Uh, yeah, precisely, yeah. <laughs> precisely. So, uh, so the, 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 the South Korea is, a, is actually a very interesting economic player. And in fact, they've even kind of established this free economic zone in the center of uh, Uzbekistan. And they have uh, uh, very important kind of logistical hubs over there. Um, so, yes, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm drawing too uh, simple a picture. But, uh, yes, the... There are some sort of unexpected kind of uh, uh, linkages, which uh, uh, yes, you'll have to forgive me if I forget no, to raise. Sure. <laughs> well, it, well, it, it seems that the larger point is that you know the narrative of trying to place both the Caucasus or Central Asia into one camp uh, just completely you know forgets a very large picture, and that is it's you can't it doesn't fit within one camp just by its geographical location and the it the the powers or the other countries around them particularly in terms of economics that they have to you know kind of fit themselves you know like the puzzle piece they are into these regional economic spheres and and geopolitical spheres yeah, I mean, I, I I completely agree, and you know, you know, geography is is uh, isn't forgiving, um, and uh, speaking for Central Asia at least, Caucasus geography might be slightly more forgiving. No, I don't I mean. I'm again, I'm stepping on your toes now, uh, but. Uh, the the, the the region is clearly uh, understands this very well and I think it's worked very hard to uh, to break itself out of again the geographical path dependency but as I say you know uh, even when you look at a country like Uzbekistan one of only two double landlocked countries in the world that's kind of one of those trivial pursuit questions uh, you know this is uh, this is not an easy uh, position for them to be in uh, in, in both uh, sort of geographical and sort of uh, geopolitical terms. Um, so I, I think that, uh, again, one of the big narratives that you were asking about is a region that is exploring ways in which to to break out of that sort of trap, if, if yeah. I mean, for want of a better word. And what, but what about the, uh, the American and even general Western European influence in the region? What, what interest, I mean, you said that for example, with Central Asia, the United States is trying to push them into, you know, their allies in South Asia, right, rather than away from China and certainly away from Russia. Uh, how does Western influence and geopolitical interests figure in, in both of these regions? Well, in the Caucasus, it's really uh, complicated and really varies a lot from country to country. Um, I mean, I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, at the, the moment we're, we're taping this, John Bolton is right. is in the Caucasus. And this is, you know, it's justifiably drawing a lot of attention. Um, this is the highest profile um, visit um, from a from a Trump administration uh, official. And so, for, you know, speaking from the, the U.S. perspective, you know, the uh, Caucasus has never been a very high priority. Yeah. It was briefly, Georgia was briefly uh, under George W. Bush, um, uh, but that kind of faded away. And um, and now, obviously, the Trump administration has, you know, further sh- shrunk um, the U.S. Um, uh, influence in the region. And so, the, you know, the U.S. really has very little... Um, um, going on there these days. I mean, Georgia is still extremely closely attached yeah. to uh, the U.S., and I don't think that's going to be broken. Uh, I think there's a there's a momentum there a tr- that uh, no matter how little the Trump administration might care about Georgia, 
that that relationship is kind of set. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that, um, uh, you know, with, with Armenia and Azerbaijan, it's a little more complicated. I mean, I think Azerbaijan would like to have closer relations with the West. And I think we're in this period now where their human rights uh, problems may not be the obstacle right. that they that they have been in the past. But at the same time, their, their energy potential um, is also kind of perceived, I, I mean, in the, in the 90s especially, and it was perceived as quite significant um, and that this was maybe a big, you know, uh, alternative to Russia. I think the, that, that initial optimism has faded. And so if you're talking sort of purely geostrategically, Azerbaijan is also not very important. Um, so, uh, you know, and then with Armenia, there's there's a big Armenian di- diaspora yeah. with a you know a, a very small number of members of Congress who try to get aid to to Armenia. Um, but if you look in real terms, the, the, the there's really very little going on between right. uh, between the U.S. and Armenia. Let me ask you about the diaspora because you know I, I come from L.A., so <laughs> the Armenian diaspora is very very. And I lived in Little Armenia for a couple of years. Um, so even on the on the cultural social level, is there a lot? Uh, is the Armenian diaspora plugged into Armenia, or is Armenia just functioning as kind of an imaginary place for American Armenians? Yeah, I think. If I may presume yeah. to uh, take over some interviewing duties, actually, yeah. I mean, I think one of the uh, most interesting pieces we had on uh, Eurasianet was actually to uh, sort of study the role that uh, the diaspora played in the recent uh, revolution oh. uh, in Armenia, and and to actually reevaluate uh, the extent to which this diaspora plays uh, a role in Armenian yeah. political life. Yeah, well, yeah, so thank you for reminding yeah. me because that was a good, uh, and thank you for asking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because it was you know pre-revolution. Revolution, it was extremely apolitical, yeah. um, and this was the a lot diaspora. of the diaspora, the American diaspora, was very apolitical. Uh, the, the, the formal organizations, anyway. I, mean, I don't want to talk about individuals. Um, different individuals had different perspectives, but the, the formal organizations, both in the U.S. and in Russia um, and, and around the world, were very disconnected, um, and this was something that a lot of people um, in Armenia resented, that, like, why... Are you, you know, so they would build, you know, it was all very development aid. Um, and people were saying, why don't you pressure the government to reform? I mean, they had this extremely kleptocratic, corrupt, uh, authoritarian government. Um, and people in Armenia would say, okay, you in America, if you really care about us, why don't you try to do something about this? And so when these protests started uh, the spring, um, they were, they, you know, the diaspora organizations were really conspicuously silent. Um, and I think they've been kind of caught wrong-footed. Um, and then the day that, I mean, literally the day that Sargsyan resigned, um, they all were like, you know, put out press releases celebrating the new, you know, but, uh, but people are not stupid and saw what was going on. And so I think that there's, you know, whatever influence they had uh, has probably been even further marginalized um, in, in the wake of this revolution. That's 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 kind of not what one would expect, considering the power if you of diaspora population, say, you know, like Ukrainian, the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada or the United States, you know, they have a lot of, uh, you know, ties to influence or interested or in developments in the country. Well, I think that, the, you know, in the Armenian case, there was really nothing. I don't know what they really could have done. Sure. And they didn't want to highlight the bad things about Armenia 
they want the U.S. to support Armenia. And so, like, highlighting the fact that their government is terrible uh-huh. is going to work against their bigger project of, you know, the U.S. supporting Armenia in against Azerbaijan, for example, right, right. Um, or supporting, the, you know, genocide recognition or, or so on. Uh, Peter, I just thought of a question asked, I wanted to ask you in terms of the diaspora or in, in Central Asia's um, role, the lack of a diaspora, particularly around um, the uh, the famine in Kazakhstan in the 30s. Because, you know, when we think of the famine, we think, of course, of Ukraine. And a lot of that is because they have a, also a very strong diaspora community. They've built, you know, chairs in history to departments and universities, they, they've made the famine uh, a particular point for building a post-Soviet national identity. What about in, in, in Kazakhstan? Is there a memory of the famine? Can you speak to that and where it plays in, in Kazakhstan today? It's a problem because uh, it, it it's, um, I think, probably uh, has a stronger place in people's sort of collective uh, oral memory. Sure. Uh, it is, of course, uh, memorialized, but uh, considering the scale of the catastrophe, uh, proportionately speaking, yeah. for Kazakhstan, you would almost expect it to be like Armenia, one of those kind of all-consuming uh, themes, mm-hmm. and yet it very much isn't. And and uh, uh, I, mm, I don't think there's a, um, a definitive theory as to why this is the case. My own personal perspective is is that, uh, you know, Kazakhstan obviously cherishes its ties with uh, Russia, uh, although uh, you know, Kazakhstan is uh, very much uh, determined to, like uh, all the other countries in the region, to you know, forge its own path and you know, be a fully sort of sovereign, independent nation. That relationship is, cannot be, cannot be uh, understated. And you know, as you see in Ukraine, any kind of attempt to to reappraise that history, to to kind of dig it all up again, would uh, would uh, I suppose the fear is uh, stand to uh, upset and irritate Russians. I mean, which is right. pretty perverse when you yes. think about it. But uh, <laughs> but uh, that is uh, it, it's a tricky thing. I mean, we had a story on our website um, a few months ago about this uh, movie that uh, is being made. I don't know actually if they managed to finish it, but an actual kind of, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a, based on a real-life story of this, uh, you know, family who managed to survive the famine. Uh, but the producer who was making it actually had to sort of raise the money independently. I mean, this wasn't a sort of a, a state-funded operation. Mm-hmm. There is this uh, big uh, Kazakh film uh, film studios uh, in uh, based in Almaty, which likes to produce these quite sort of uh, prestige uh, pictures, uh, quite a few of them kind of... Um, uh, period uh, dramas mm-hmm. uh, but when it comes to that obvious an obvious kind of topic for dramatization uh, no I mean it's 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 there people are aware of it it's studied but it's uh, it, it, it isn't it's not like you hear about it on TV all the time or you see posters everywhere I mean that's just is not the case yeah I've always because I, I there's a book coming out on the famine in a few months by Sarah Cameron and uh, I've just been thinking about that a lot, particularly after reading and doing interviews about the fate of, uh, you know, nomadic peoples in Kazakhstan in the 1930s and the famine. And, and I, I trust you will have her on as a guest. Oh, I I'm, most I'm, definitely, I'm, yes. I'm, 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 <laughs> I know her, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm very much look, looking forward to both the book and, and, and your interview with her because uh, – uh, 
what is actually notable is uh, what one hears a lot from historians doing archival work in Kazakhstan these days is uh, is how good the access yes. is and uh, and a lot of uh, great work is being done and uh, and it's it's a rather bitter irony perhaps that some of the kind of the strongest uh, uh, historiography on this region may end up being written in English which uh, yeah. I think is uh, uh, a little unfortunate, but you know, better than nothing, I suppose. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see whether, if, 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 if it sort of, you know, if in some small circles, it, this, this sort of wave of works, because I, I don't think Sarah's not alone in no. kind of in doing this research. You know, if, if it sort of catches the imagination in Kazakhstan, who knows that through some very uh, circuitous, um, improbable route that. That it might not kind of have a renaissance in in, in Kazakhstan. It's 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 a it's a desperately sad, uh, uh, of course, topic because so many of the people who might have you know first-hand recollections yeah. are you know they're now so few. Yeah. Uh, I have to say that. I mean, I would slightly correct myself. I mean, it's, it's you know maybe I'm overstating the extent to which it's downplayed in in national discourse. I think it's it's simply spoken about, but very very quietly, uh, and not given a place of prominence. But the research is is going on, and there are various sort of projects, state supported projects, to to uh, you know to 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 create a kind of a, a database of of memory. But it's not something which say you would expect the president to speak about right. uh, in any kind of particularly um, prominent way. You know, in, in the terms of the Armenian genocide, for the first several decades after the, the Armenian genocide, it was also not spoken of, right. um, I think, for different reasons. But it was, um, you know, people grew up Armenian-American not even knowing that there was a genocide. And now, obviously, that's changed quite a bit. So, you know, that with time, that could change in, in Kazakhstan. I, I mean, uh, as far as I know, I mean, the Ukrainian, uh, the Holodomor is a sort of similar dynamic. I mean, that was not spoken about for a no. long time, and it was kind of the, the diaspora that, uh, yeah. uh, so it's, 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 it's this very strange situation where, it's, again, it always comes through the back door. Uh, with Kazakhstan, sort of irony of ironies, and maybe sort of foreigners who have to sort of yeah. maybe, uh, I mean, I, I hope I'm not uh, horribly distorting uh, the reality, but it, it, uh, that's very much my understanding of the Situation. You know, because the, re the reason why I ask it is that in our in our kind of consciousness of these these re this region as a whole or the post-Soviet spaces, you know, the Armenian genocide weighs heavily. Um, you know, if living in L.A., you can't escape it on on uh, April 24th, is it? Uh, and, of course, in the historiography of the Soviet Union, the Holodomor, you know, reigns really heavily as well. Yet, you know, even in English scholarship, the, the the work on Central Asia is already, you know, still developing. But the the level of catastrophe in Kazakhstan is just something that nobody has really addressed repeatedly on the level of these other, you know, uh, moments of mass mass death. Mm -hmm. So, um, so in your, you know, you you guys both. You really have a – well, actually, Peter, I want you to, to talk about um, – we skipped over you in terms of the U.S. or Western influence in, in Central Asia. I think that um, to speak specifically about uh, just the U.S., I mean, I know there are other parts of the West, but uh, the, America has uh, – despite I think it's outside certain obvious sort of uh, areas of uh, investment, uh, the U.S. has really a very light footprint in the region, and yet yeah. it punches way above its weight in, in when considering the kind of economic uh, role that the U.S. has to play in the region. Um, I, I mean, I think 
think that just simply there's a simple kind of uh, sort of magnetic kind of appeal that uh, that uh, the US and, and the West in general has. And so, for instance, uh, this was driven home to me most strongly when uh, the president of Uzbekistan visited the White House earlier this year. He was uh, um, uh, met with uh, Trump in the White House, and this you know completely consumed yeah. kind of Uzbek state media for for the period in which it happened to such an extent that I think the Russians are quite sort of, you know, they, they kind of put their backs up a little bit. I mean, you really, um, uh, the Russians have to kind of go all out to kind of to, to, to uh, charm Central Asians, right. but the Americans just have to kind of send you a, an RSVP and, and, uh, <laughs> and that's enough. Uh, I, you know, but again, uh, but, you know, there's only so much I think that the West really has to offer. I mean, even these kind of these infrastructural projects that I was talking about linking Central Asia to to uh, to South Asia, for instance, it's not as though America, like China and like Russia, is kind of signing checks. I mean, usually if it's China it's signing checks and eventually it'll kind of uh, cash them in. Uh, Russia, not so much. Um but yeah, but, but uh, even projects like that, uh, as I was saying, uh, tend not to be underwritten by the the, the U.S. government because sure. that's not what the, U, the U.S. is not in the business of doing that. Uh, so you know, the commitment I think is is uh, moral. It's kind of uh, strategic, uh, but beyond that, uh, it's a, it's a surprisingly light. Uh, footprint and then of course I mean the, the elephant in the room is of course Afghanistan um, and it's uh, the elephant the very dispiriting elephant in the room because it's um, striking of course the extent to which the uh, uh, Western Central Asian relationship is contingent on this uh, on the security agenda which in my opinion is completely blown out of uh, uh, proportion to the reality on the ground. I mean, the, the idea of, uh, this is another of the stereotypes, incidentally returning to stereotypes, of uh, Central Asia as this kind of, you know, hotbed of terrorism and all right. this kind of nonsensical phrases uh, one tends to hear is, is you know, I, in my opinion, uh, and, you know, I've received criticism for it in the past is uh, uh, overblown, not to say, uh, largely fabricated. Um, so uh you know the the, the really sad aspect of of, uh, of that kind of linkage that's happened is that um uh, it means that often US foreign policy and this is uh relevant specifically to the US is so security related that uh, you know all other kind of uh, aspects of the agenda sadly tend to take a very very right. uh um second place so what's the the issue um, or what role or importance of religion in the region? Because I've heard this about Central Asia, various opinions about, you know, the fears of Islamization of Central Asia and, you know, terrorists. And they they point to, say, you know, every time there's a discussion of Syria, it seems like there's always some mention of Uzbek jihadists or something like this. I know the Russians are concerned about this. And this, of course, with the Caucasus as well, this is, I think, probably one of the main stereotypes that's viewed through this lens, both coming from Russia, but I think in general through an Islamization of certain uh, to some extent. So how does Islam function or what role, the, what, where does it, what is its place in these societies? If I can just go, I, I, um, yeah. as history tells us, uh, you know, the, 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 this traditionally uh, uh, Muslim region obviously became very secular to right. all intents and purposes uh, in, in the Soviet era. 
Uh, and with the end of the Soviet Union, I think that uh, secularism persisted a uh, uh, fairly uh, long time. Uh, but of course, you know, when ideology goes away, these are, uh, you know, uh, ideology-free uh, nations par excellence. I mean, it's not as though uh, the Soviet Union kind of went away and some sort of Jeffersonian capitalist kind of uh, model. I mean, it, they're, they're, they're sort of you know, technocratic kind of uh, authoritarian states, I think, mm. is, is the most generous way I would describe them. And so th that's a sort of not exactly uh, a sort of a rich proposition, let's say, on the kind of the, 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 the spiritual level. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, so uh, I, what, what, although I don't like the word Islamization because it's, there's a sort of, you know, there's a, a certain uh, negative connotation sure, to it. I mean, it not, 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 not there should be but I, I what I would speak is is about is uh, piety an increased piety so if I if I speak about Tajikistan where I've been for a few months um, yes a certain kind of uh, uh, reversion to to um, yes customs which are uh, faith-based mm -hmm. but it's not as though um, you know that that it's it's like the 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 fabric of society is becoming Islamic. It's just that, right. that people have, uh, you know, turned to religion as a form of uh, consolation, as a kind of a, a, a form of kind of identity. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in, in, and uh, if anything, I'm rather surprised it's happened. It's happening so late. But it is a trend that I think is, again, five different countries, five different dynamics, so very hard to generalize. Um, but it's a very understudied, uh, misunderstood, under-understood uh, phenomenon, yeah. um, and uh, uh, but definitely one that's going to warrant much more work. And I mean, I, the one last thing I would just say, um, for instance, taking Kyrgyzstan, which I'd say is probably, uh, you know, on the secular kind of religious spectrum as one of the more secular, is the one where this turn to piety in my view, especially going out into the regions, is being felt uh, in a most pronounced fashion. And what's uh, interesting there is that whereas you know, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, uh, the state is kind of quite, it aspires to be very capillary in its control of, of uh, the religious, religious messaging. In Kyrgyzstan, it's sort of developing quite organically. Uh, you know, whether that's a good or a bad thing is, is a matter of perspective, but but it is happening, and, and uh, that's going to be one to watch, I think. Yeah, in the Caucasus, I mean, I, I think in the, you know, the Russian imagination, you know, it's the North Caucasus that's really the sure. producer, Chechnya, Dagestan, which is a whole separate thing from the South Caucasus. Um, what, what's interesting that in the South Caucasus is that, you know, Georgia, uh, which has a very small Muslim minority, I don't know what percent of the population is, but it's very small, centered around Batumi and around especially the Pankisi Gorge, um, which is a borders uh, Chechnya. Um, and as you might have heard, there was a military commander of ISIS who was from Georgia, uh, this al-Shishani, who was extreme, very high-ranking in, uh, in ISIS. Uh, and so as a result, the, the amount of attention that's paid to <laughs> these very small number of Georgian Muslims um, to not get them to become terrorists is, right. is really quite extraordinary. Um, and there's all these Western programs about, you know, countering violent extremism. And for this really very small number of Muslims, and a very small number of whom have joined ISIS. Uh, and it to me seems, you know, if I were a Georgian Muslim, I would be like, nobody paid attention to us at all before a few people joined ISIS. Like, it's a very perverse uh, incentive. 
Um, but I do think that the security agenda, you know, finds its way even into the most unlikely um, parts of uh, of the region. Does that go for, say, Iran's influence over Azerbaijan in terms of Shia? Yeah, I mean, that's a separate situation. And that's something that, that Azerbaijan itself is very worried about. Um, they, they're a bit more like the, you know, Central Asian style, extremely Soviet approach to religion, which is that, you know, the, the less the better. Um, and they're very suspicious of any, um, any uh, uh, appearance of, of anything religious at all. And so the fact that the majority of Azerbaijanis are Shias um, and that there's then an obvious um, potential attraction to Iran. Um, you know, this year at Ashura, they, they tried to uh, ban um, the, the self-flagellation, um, which people started to kind of dabble with in the last couple of years in Azerbaijan. Um, and they tried to to stop that, um, and so there is a very high. But I, I mean, I actually, to be honest, haven't seen very much um, as much uh, effort from the West in terms of countering that kind of. I don't know, maybe because it's not going to be ISIS right. um, <laughs> that they're not as worried about it. Uh-uh. Um, but yeah, but that's but it is something that internally within Azerbaijan they're extremely worried about, yeah. and people are are watching very closely. But I mean, this is what's really, literally, on um, the religious issue. It's it's really interesting that a lot of the policies, um, because that the impression that both of you have given for Central Asia and the South Caucasus is kind of the impression that I've gotten just from kind of cursory attention, um, that in many respects these states uh, have maintained themselves as really highly secular states um, that are really suspicious of any uh, kind of religious you know, development um, as a point of national identity, which I would, this is my surprising part, that religion is an easy go-to to develop a kind of national consciousness. And this doesn't seem to be really happening on, on a big level. It has happened in Georgia, for sure. Ge- oh, really? For the um, Georgian Christianity? Yeah, uh. yeah. Um, and to the, to the extent that a lot of people, liber- liberal Georgians especially, are extremely resentful of the church's influence. Um, and a lot of people see it as a kind of state within the state that's blocking. Um, and the, the church is still, you know, very, you know, traditionally culturally conservative. And so they don't like um, these sort of newfangled ideas coming from the West, like gay right. rights and so yeah. on. Um, and so they tend to block those things. And they're extremely powerful. And Georgians are extremely devout. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the church kind of wields uh, very outsized influence Um in, in Georgia. In Armenia, it's not quite the same linkage between um, the state and the church, and I don't think the church has as much influence politically um, as it does in Georgia, but people are still extremely devout, and, the, and the, the, um, uh, the government still does rely on Christianity as a, as a, um, uh, a kind of unifying force yeah. uh, among population. I think uh, what you also have to account for and it's uh, very hard to um, underestimate is the truly mind-bending kind of hypocrisy of these uh, governments that kind of uh, <laughs> again taking Tajikistan as an example uh, this is the story this is the nation where we hear stories about people have forcibly having their beards shaven off uh, women in the veil being detained by police and all mm-hmm. this sort of thing and yet at the same time 
I mean, I'm going to get my date wrong, but sometime last year, the president took his entire family to uh, perform the Hajj and uh, posted, you know, these preposterous photos of himself sort of wrapped up in sheets, you know, doing the doing the sort of the tour of of Mecca, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, for this president of all presidents to to dress himself in the kind of the cloak of piety. Uh, is 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 truly uh, just the height of preposterousness. Um, it may be topped by uh, Ilham Aliyev and his wife doing the same thing. <laughs> oh, really? They possibly are even more preposterous. Okay, well, uh, but anyway. I mean, we can discuss that later. I, mean, I, I reckon my, my guy has your guy beat. Um, uh, it, it, but you know, it, it's. It's weird though because it's a very strange uh, um, type rope that it, it, in Tajikistan takes it to kind of absurd extremes, as I said. But uh, but it even say, for example, Uzbekistan. So Uzbekistan, since the 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 kind of the Iron Fist dictator uh, died, and now you've got the slightly you know more benevolent sort of maybe dictator. Velvet we'll glove. find out. Yes, velvet velvet glove dictator. Uh, um, what you have is. Uh, is having to now uh, come to terms with the emerging uh, sort of groups in society which didn't really have much of a voice before. So now uh, the religious are more vocal in Uzbekistan. Mm. Uh, and so... And yet, even there, you know, it's, it's such a kind of a, a strange, contradictory picture. Because although Karimov didn't, you know, have any time for uh, for you know pious Muslims, he still uh, ruled over a deeply conservative country. So he was he still sort of clung to these. I don't know. Maybe that's a Soviet. I mean, yeah. that's something you could probably speak right. to uh, more uh, in more detail. That the Soviet Union was this kind of rather uh, uh, stuffy, uh, morally conservative place. Sure. And I guess he sort of he he carried that over to Uzbekistan but again not not and yet you know called himself a Muslim you know he 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 embraced that as his faith but sort of kept it at arm's length and, and that picture more or less replicates across the region I would yeah. say so this sort of slightly schizophrenic yes we're Muslim but not that kind of Muslim and 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 it's all state Islam as well. I mean, right. you know that uh, um, you know it's, it's very sad to see sort of the almost complete eradication of kind of you know say Sufism in this region. I mean, these kind of very uh, rich uh, uh, traditions of of, of indigenous uh, uh, Islamic kind of uh, custom and belief of, of very much uh, sort of withered on the vine. Uh, it, it's it's our Islam. Uh, which is not an Islam that I think many people in the rest of the Islamic world would recognize as any kind of Islam at all uh, or no Islam at all. Um, And and finally, um, why should we care about Central Asia and the South Caucasus? Why, why, as as an American, just speaking as an American, you know, why should I be care about what happens in these places? You know, it's just, it's just, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, somehow you get wrapped up in it, um, as we described earlier, and it kind of hooks you. And I mean, to me, um, you know, as sort of personal intellectual interests yeah. of um, kind of identity formation and uh, the sort of use of history, the political use of history, um, if those are kind of your intellectual interests, I mean, the, this region is an absolute gold mine, right. uh, and you're really seeing these things happen in real time. Um, so that personally is why I find it so fascinating, is because it's so um, it's so active and open in those kind of uh, those kind of fields. 
Um, That's personally why yeah, I, I find I, I it. I guess I should have framed the question of as, as two people who are writing for an English reading audience, how do you make it so an English reader you know, would be interested in reading what you write? Is, or is this even something that's on your mind? And, no, it's, not? Definitely, it's definitely on my mind. I mean, I think, and this is something that I am always talking to the, the writers about, is you have to think about people in America, in Germany, and wherever reading this, um, and they have very different, um, you know, interests. And I think, I think that there's a, a bigger picture of the, um, this transition, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, um, this kind of what's happening with these countries after the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is still a very much unanswered question. Um, and, you know, these are eight of the 15. That's a majority of the, <laughs> the former Soviet republics uh, and that are probably the, the least paid attention to. Yeah. Um, and that are doing eight different things or more uh, and, um, you know, provide, I think, a lot of really interesting um, case studies, examples, um, you know, negative examples, positive examples of, of the possibilities of, of, you know, post-Soviet transition. Um, so I think in, the, in that bigger intellectual question of where do we go now after this, I think these are crucial countries, which yeah. you really don't hear that much um, in English. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I mean, intellectually speaking, uh, for scholars, I think, uh, not to overstate the point, but but uh, it, it is uh, remarkable how young these countries are. I know that's sort of, I always feel like it's a bit patronizing to say that, but uh, uh, it, 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 they're young in the sense that uh, one sees things happening which you know, you'll be reading about, I don't know, Turkey in the 1920s, and you go, oh, my God, that's what's happening in, in the country that I write about, right? So, uh, so so from a purely kind of scholarly point of view, I think that it should be object of uh, a great deal of interest. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it, there are things happening in these countries which were happening in other countries, uh, and yet they're happening in 2018. You know, they're happening in the age of Facebook and Instagram right, and right. Twitter, and that sort of brings a whole sort of set of uh, unexpected uh, uh, sort of uh, quirks to the whole uh, uh, dynamic. As to, you know, the bigger picture geopolitically, uh, why uh, should people be interested in the region? Uh, what I always say to people uh uh, who approached me with the same question in the region, or rather, uh, on the contrary, you know, why are why is the West, you know, trying to meddle with our yeah. politics, which is the <laughs> usual sort of thing I'm I'm, I'm on the end of, uh, is you know I, I say well you're quite right, and I think if anything, uh, what you should aspire to is for nobody to be interested in you, <laughs> because the less the less interested in you the world is, the less likely it is that you know they're going to be trying to kind of screw you over for something <laughs> or other. Uh, so you know I. I I don't know if I'm performing a, a, a good service. You know, I, I, now, I could, um, of course, one could, wanting to sort of go down the the sort of the Mackinda, you know, unfurl your big maps, kind of go, oh, well, you know, it's uh, this sort of, uh, yeah, whatever, whatever the expression is, kind of geopolitical hinge, which I'm not entirely sold on. It, there's a bit of that. There's a bit of that, sure. You know, it's, I mean, there's the West is over there and China's yeah. over there in the middle is this big kind of blob called Eurasia. Uh, so naturally, there is a sort of uh, uh, 
clear point of interest from uh, from a trading geopolitical perspective. Uh, but like Josh, I'm, I'm 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 personally a little bit cold on this. You know, like what I what I always the stories that I enjoy editing and writing the most in the end tend to be the, the smaller stories. They're the, yeah. the stories about you know single people. They're the stories about. Uh, like the one that uh, should be coming out this week uh, on the website about Afghan students studying in southern Uzbekistan, right? And these little sort of unexpected points of of, uh, of contact or, or these points of contacts which, which you think should have happened ages ago, but are only happening now. Like the, I like I like those stories. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I hope that they're interesting to people. If they're not, you know, well, and that's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, guys, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for having much. me. That was Peter Leonard and Josh Kuchera. Peter has served as Eurasianet's Central Asia editor since 2015. Prior to that, he's, he worked as the Ukraine bureau chief for the Associated Press. And between 2009 and 2013, he served as Central Asia correspondent for the AP. Josh is Eurasian Net's Turkey and Caucasus editor. He has also written about the Caucasus in Central Asia for Slate, The New York Times, Al Jazeera America, The Atlantic, and other publications. He's a former staff reporter for Jane's Defense Weekly and the Associated Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Stop me, stop me, stop me, stop me. I'm dropping